Hey folks, this is Jason from The High Route to intro episode seven of The High Route podcast. In this episode, we speak with Teton Bay skier, Sophia Schwartz. Here's some short backstory. I do keep up with the ski media, but no shocker here, it skews towards the backcountry scene. And clearly, even then, I miss some things. Anyhow, Schwartz's name came up in an email from someone urging me to check out her talk at this year's Wysaw, or Wyoming Snow and Avalanche Workshop. There was a plug in there noting that I would probably like her talk. Confirm that. I loved her talk. And yes, we will link to it in the show notes and on the high route. During her Wysaw talk, Schwartz brings up so many good topics, uh, but really for me, the takeaway was how to be the best version of myself in the backcountry. It is definitely worth a watch. Okay, Schwartz was a top-level mogul skier in the past, part of the U.S. ski team and an Olympic aspirant. She can huck and fly and nail the landing, and it turns out, focus on spicy backcountry objectives or be just as happy smiling by herself during a mellow meadow skipping mission. Those of you that listen to the podcast know we interrupt the introduction to plug our reader-supported website, The High Route, where our simple mission is to cover human-powered turn-making in the backcountry. Listen up for the site address because we have hyphens in the name. It's the-high-route.com. One more time, the-high-route.com. And hyphen is definitely not spelled out. It's just a dash between the words. Furthermore, our podcasts are free, yet are not free to produce or host on a server. If you are enjoying our podcast, please consider supporting the site. That's it for the plug. Now it's on to the show featuring Sophia Schwartz. We begin the interview asking her about sending down the Porter Square T escalator, which is in Boston, and not quite nailing the landing. Schwartz discusses the incident during her Wausau talk and shows some kind of gruesome images. Seriously, I had to have my hand over my eyes to prevent myself from getting a good look. As noted, she did not nail the landing and was injured. After an ambulance and some good care, she rebounded. Schwartz gave us some things to think about, and we're very glad that our paths crossed, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. As soon as you showed the esc- no, yeah, the escalator, was that what you sent down in 2017? I was like, I have I I lived a couple of years in Boston. I was like, "Oh yeah, I remember that thing." Mm-hmm. So, and I was waiting for this, but I'm curious like you are were a high-level US ski team freestyle team mogul skier. Correct? Perfect. Do I have that right? Yep. And so that may have been sort of like visualizing, yeah, okay, there's an angle there, there's gravity, I can probably send that. How did that evolve? So the escalator incident came out of seeing another skier ski down the London tube and being like, whoa, that looks cool. And then I had many, many friends living in the Porter Square area in Boston. And so I had ridden that escalator a few times and was like, this thing is 
the escalator. It's so long. It's so steep. And I was coaching a airbag trampoline camp in Waterville, New Hampshire. I had skied out of there previously and was on my way to Argentina. So I actually had an extra pair of like beat up skis already with me. And I was like, this is the moment I should ski this escalator. Um, and I had a lot of concerns. Um, the transition was so steep and intense from, yeah, the like steep to flat. And then there's a wall at the end. So there isn't a lot of room to like slow down or stop. Um, and yeah, I think that I had been so calculated in all of my mogul days and I had just retired from the U S team and was seeking out big mountain. And there were a lot of factors that were going on, um, that went into that decision. And it was kind of cool. Afterwards, I wrote an article just for myself, like a debrief, um, and did it through all the different like heuristic factors kind of through like facets and um, looking at it through more like an avalanche perspective of, yeah, like how much was this me trying to like be cool on social media? Like how much it was like just wanting to like do something fun. Like if I was going to do it again, like how would I prepare differently? Like, was it a goal I actually cared about? Um, And so in many ways, I think, yeah, took it as a good learning opportunity. But more than anything, I think I've backed off of things a lot. I don't feel like I have uh, unreasonable amount of, you know, like fearlessness, like I get scared. And there have been plenty of times I've said no. And that moment was really the first time that I was like, whoa, I can swallow my fear. And I can like pull the trigger when I know I shouldn't. Um, And I really appreciate having that before I moved to Jackson because it is so intense here. And the other thing that I didn't really share in saw that it gave me is I'm pretty small. I'm like five foot two. I'm a woman. I've always had to prove my toughness. And I did that whole thing without any pain meds because I just get really sick off of pain meds. I like walked myself back up the escalator, got an ambulance and just like handled the whole thing. And coming out of it, I was like, whoa, like I don't need to be this tough. Like I need to be a lot softer. And so I think unfortunately and fortunately, it finally gave me the confidence to be like, I don't have to prove my toughness to anyone. And it helped a lot because when I moved to Jackson and I backed off of things, you know, people were pretty quick to be like, oh, you're just scared. Like, you know, like stop being so soft, Sophia. And I could just kind of like have this huge scar on my back and be like, oh, you have no idea what I I can do. And I don't have to prove it to you because I don't want to be there again. Yeah. I mean, plus just, I mean, thinking about I'm not, I've never done anything in the, I guess the, the, the plane that's more vertical skiing, right? I may have got, you know, like a 360 when I was younger kind of thing, but like, that's it. So like, I can only imagine like the mental training. Well, that's, that's actually quite an interesting story. I just had assumed that you were like laid out because they showed that little stub or whatever it was that you hit. And I was like, she just must've been incapacitated. So, wow. You had to walk all the way up that thing. Yeah. We took the escalator back up. I went to the bathroom so that the crowd of the trains coming by would go past and I could get out of all of my ski gear. Cause I didn't want to be arrested when the ambulance and the cops came. Cause we had called 911. So I was with some friends and I gave them my skis and my boots and I changed like back into my running shoes and like walked outside and my friend was just giving like uh, pressure to the wound and there was a police officer and he was like can I see it 
And I was like, based off my friend's reaction, I think the best thing is to keep it covered until the ambulance comes. Because <laughs> I hadn't seen it or really knew what was going on. And then the ambulance co- came gotcha. and I, I popped gotcha. in with them. But yeah, I think, um, yeah, I was very okay. thankful that I was with it. I was definitely in shock, but I was able to like be present and calm and like help orchestrate my own rescue. Yeah, I, I man, I'm a little... Yeah, I, I could see myself just being kind of crumpled and lying there in my own misery. I've watched your talk twice now. And so I just watched it maybe an hour, hour and a half ago and wrote some notes on the second one. You know, the first one, it's like, I just want to kind of take it all in. Second one was a little more academic, process it, write some questions. And so the questions really kind of revolve around a lot of just kind of quotes that or, or statements that you made that I kind of wanted to dig into a little bit. I tend to be rational and you really made me think when you said, you know, we all need to be a little irrational to love the backcountry. When you make that statement, I'm curious, where does that, or where did it come from? Yeah. Yeah. Such a good question. Um, I think that like in many ways, skiing and being in the backcountry, whether you're snowmobiling, skiing, snowboarding is a little bit like counterculture to start with. And it has a lot of type two fun. And I think there are many mornings that you wake up and it's cold and it's dark and you have to talk yourself into going and you have to say, this is worth it, (laughs) even though in this moment, you know, I'd way rather stay in bed. So I think that we work through that decision and that sort of like, type two fun and that ability to kind of suffer through things and struggle to do things that are amazing and rewarding. And so I think that there's like a natural like disposition to seek out tough things as backcountry enthusiasts. And so much of what I am really proud of in myself and my friends and admire in backcountry enthusiasts is that ability, is that ability to not just take the easy way out, but sort of be like, ugh, I don't want to do this right now. Swallow that and go do it anyways. And while that is one of our greatest skills, in many ways too, it can be one of our greatest weaknesses. I'm curious, like thinking about, you know, this perhaps this propensity that, you know, we are or can be irrational. My question is like, how do you balance that? How do you balance in a place like Jackson or the Tetons where there's a lot of chargers, there clearly it's like everybody knows sort of what everyone's been up to, even with the people that don't talk about it, it gets out, right? Um, How do you balance that sort of irrational piece with being very rational? And how did you sort of evolve that? Because that's something I took away from your talk is that that was an evolution for you. Not necessarily you got out there day one. We're like, oh, I'm going to make smart decisions like every, you know, like a pro. Yeah, I. It's definitely been a learning journey. I think that, um, in so many ways, the friends and people I know who have died in the mountains have been just so human, right? And I think that our we want to like paint people kind of as like monsters a little bit so that we don't feel like we are them and that we will stay safe because I think like it's really painful knowing so many people who have died in the mountains and still showing up to make the choice to be a backcountry skier and so back to that is irrationality like holding both of those truths is like I don't it's hard I don't want to do that 
And so the question of like, how do I outsmart this problem? How do I know everything? How do I learn everything? Um, is sort of my MO. Like I've always been kind of pragmatic and even in my mogul career, a lot of times tried to, you know, find growth by using my nerdy intellectual side um, to like be a better athlete. And that's hold true in the backcountry as well. And so I think that it's just been a lot of years of asking these questions and continuing to be curious and owning my mistakes and asking friends and mentors and saying, how do I think about this opposite? How do I think about this different? Or, you know, like, what would someone else say in this moment? And I think that's where I've really, like, stumbled upon meaning, um, where I think previously I put so much weight onto, like, education and saying, like, if I just know enough, I'll be able to ski whatever I want all the time. And then I've seen the people who I look up to most as people who know a lot and ski the things I want to ski all the time also get caught in slides and be like, whoa, none of us have the answers here. So how do I find fulfillment in not skiing avalanche terrain all the time? And when I do ski avalanche terrain, how do I set myself up to be just like the best situation to do that and to like honor and like acknowledge I'm taking a risk in that moment? Um, so yeah, how do you balance those? Cause I imagine, yeah, being a long time backcountry skier, you must have stories of friends or yeah. either yourself or. I mean, like I've like a lot of us, I've, I made more dumb mistakes when I was younger. I mean, that's sort of common. Yeah. You know, getting caught in a couple of avalanches. Um, yeah. And clearly making unwise decisions. It wasn't even like, well, I was being calculated in this. It was more a function of being in my early 20s. I think I had probably taken back then and they had different terms. I think it was a level one class at that point was my the extent of my education. And I like to be by myself. And again, you know, it was like fresh snow by myself. And it was a completely irrational situation that somehow I tried to rationalize. <laughs> How's that? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's okay. Like, I think like solitary is a really important type of meaning that gets stigmatized a lot in the backcountry. that in some ways, you know, I think we also need to talk about as a community because I think in some ways it's safer to go ski something low angle by yourself than ski something <laughs> really dangerous with friends. Um, and I think that like, yeah, I'm okay with like naming solitariness as like a beautiful type of meaning, um, and being able to like hold that for you too. This is a little bit of a pivot, but this is actually something just in like randomly researching you, right? I was like, um, it sounded like you were supposed to go to Denali. This was maybe four or five years ago. And you ended up going to the winds and doing a traverse. And yeah. I don't, I don't know Ian, um, but I had read that trip report that I think he wrote for Uphill Athlete or something, way back. Do you remember this? Yeah. Way back. Yes. So I, I was do. like, okay, and not that way back, but like pre-COVID maybe or right when COVID went down. I don't remember. Do you, yeah. When was the year? Right at the start of COVID. Oh, it was. Okay. Yeah, it was 2020 because we, that's why our Denali trip got canceled. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. 
Well, so I read, I read that report. I'm curious, like what, what drew you to a traverse? I mean, you were clearly going to Denali, which is not a traverse, but it's a, it's a slog. Yeah. But I'm, but you pulled off the traverse and I'm just curious, like as someone that I would just be like, she's a freestyle skier, she's a mogul skier, you know, she's like sending stuff that I'm like, holy crap. Uh, and traversing's like more meditative mm-hmm. and slow process. I'm just curious to me again, I'm just curious, like, can you speak to those, that kind of duality? Yeah. What you did or didn't like about the slow cook traverse. Yeah. I love being present in the mountains and I think, yeah, getting to move on your skis for so many hours is just the most beautiful, like reflective way to go about and getting remote. You know, we didn't see anyone else out there. I imagine you saw no one else out there on your days in the winds. And I think holding space for multiple types of meaning, um, because I don't think I could be a traverse skier every day and for all the time. Um, but again, I think being able to not just like pigeonhole yourself into only liking one type of skiing and being able to find joy across like a lot of different types is so vital in my like safety approach. Um, and so things I love about traversing is you get to know your teammates so well. Um, I love driving past the range and being like, whoa, I walked all of that. And the epic surprises of, you know, rounding corners and being stunned by the view that you had no idea was coming. Um, and yeah, there were moments where we walked past really cool kuars and I was like, why are we traversing? <laughs> Can't we just set up a base camp and ski? <laughs> like, I don't want to walk past that anymore. It's like so much fun to ski. <laughs> Said every freaking traverser <laughs> going back into time immemorial, right? right? It's like, why are we skiing past this yeah. stuff? Yeah. Um, but it's great. And I oh, think that's that so like, it's so cool to like have challenges and like the fitness challenge of it has been really cool. Cause as yeah, a more sandy skier, like I know I can work my way down the train I'm skiing. Um, but I think my pack was like 76 pounds at the beginning and I weigh 105 pounds, six pounds. Um, and so like that gratification, that like being really proud of myself, you know, that's so meaningful. And if I can only find it by like hugging really big jumps or skiing avalanche terrain, I'm just upping the percentage of time that I'm in really dangerous situations. And I think when you can traverse and find joy and do other things, you can find that same like flow state and that same like purpose and meaning in different ways. Just like watching your talk, you know, I was imagining like, I wonder what is it, what would it be like if I ran into Sophia at the trailhead and she had like a big objective, right? You were like objective skiing, right? And I, and I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, yeah, what would it be like to meet you at the trailhead when you are like, I, yeah, you're focused. Yeah. You're focused on something like you have a big task at hand. Yeah. Curious. Definitely. Yeah. I definitely am in more, more intense mode for sure. I think, um, I really care about time 
And I think that's definitely like, if you see me more fired up, it's all around being punctual. <laughs> Cause I just think time is so important and like setting yourself up for success is the best place to be diligent in that. Um, but I think I'm still like pretty friendly and I'm open and honest. If someone asks me what I'm going to go ski, I'm going to tell them exactly what I'm going to go ski. Um, cause communication is really important. And I learned that lesson actually on the grand, um, one time skiing it because we didn't communicate well with the other party and we ended up, you know, yeah, being in like not good situations, like skiing down on each other and, um, not asking each other what their turnaround times were and not wanting to be sort of like, uh, condescending in any ways. I stayed really quiet and I think it was our responsibility actually to talk in the situation. Um, but yeah, I like to be friendly. I think that, the like scarcity issue in skiing is tricky and it's real. And I've almost seen it the opposite in rock climbing because there's so much more information out there in rock climbing. And I think it's because if someone climbs a route on Monday and then you climb it on Tuesday, the conditions don't change. And so while it sucks, if there's like 10 parties on the same route, that can definitely change your day. In skiing, it like does matter if someone skis it the day before um, and it can affect conditions in that way. But I think, again, like coming back to being like, yeah, I care where way more about like community and my friendships and my relationships. And I'm skied moguls, icy moguls for, you know, 26 years of my life. I'm pretty down to ski bad conditions. <laughs> um, I think it's important to like, yeah, kind of change that vibe in the parking lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's just interesting. And like, like I, you, you come across as someone like markedly probably more thoughtful than myself, even though maybe I'm just holding myself in very low regard right now. But like, yeah, I was like, Oh, I wonder what it would be like to run into her in the parking lot. And yeah. Cause oftentimes those anywhere you go, it can be kind of a, yeah, the scarcity piece, like everything. It just adds a, an element of tension sometimes that you're just like at the end of the day, it's like we're all recreating in the mountains, right? No matter how sandy someone may or may not be getting. Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I almost get the opposite of it, right? Like I think I'm not that known, um, again, like pretty small human. And so people aren't necessarily like assuming I'm going to go ski a cool objective. Most of the like heat I get is like skiing low angle terrain and people asking if I'm like lost and need help. <laughs> You're kind of like, no, I'm good. Like I, I know what I'm doing. I've done this before. And they're like, are you sure? Like, do you know how to get back to the car? And you're like, yeah, I've seen this like a hundred times. And they're like, okay. As long as you're safe, like just know there's avalanches out there. And you're like, okay, I get it. <laughs> We're skiing the same thing. Have a great day. Um, so I think like people don't necessarily see me in the parking lot. They're like, oh, what's that? Well, she's going to go charge. Sure. Um, maybe now as I like know more people and yeah, I think my career kind of continues to grow, but <laughs> tends to be pretty low key here's something to kind of go back a little bit when you were talking about that day on the grand where, and that's, you're not alone in particular. I'm sure I know you're not alone on that particular objective and knowing that there's constraints in terms of timing, getting up and down, getting to repel skiing on top of, of folks. Um, at least amongst your community, what is that? Is it a fairly open conversation about what does progress look like? when it comes to communicating with folks in the mountains? Just curious 
yeah. what that might look like. It's so like. awesome. I, yeah. What, okay. Well, yeah. Tell me, tell me a little bit about yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I feel so lucky to have amazing partners and to like work with partners on that. Um, but I think we are so intentional around our communication um, and it flows pretty naturally. And I, sometimes I do it very purposefully and sort of just asking like, how are you feeling today? Um, you know, are you still feeling good? Like, how can I support you? What are you like legitimately nervous about? What kind of fear do you feel like you're holding just around like self-doubt that you maybe like want to move past? Um, yeah. Like how's the rest of your life? Is this the right day to even be skiing this? Um, and I think again, like having that trust and I also test partners. And when I don't have that kind of relationship with someone, I don't go after the big objectives. You know, I've definitely gone on some low angle tours where, you know, I thought we were friends and then I didn't see them for like an hour until they reached the top. And it just turned out that like I had a broken binding and they never waited for me. <laughs> um, and I think they felt pretty bad at the end. But I was like, yeah, like these are things that happen. And I think I've skied with a lot of friends where, you know, I felt awful that day and was kind of sick and they were down to change objectives. And that was like a huge win for me in the day. Um, and same, I've been like really excited to ski something and my ski partner hasn't, you know, shown up on that day ready for it. And we've sort of been like, yeah, we don't have to do this today. And then we've gotten to go back and do it. And it's been so cool. It's freeing. It's so freeing to like not also have to do stuff when you don't want to do it. Imagine you're with a fairly hard charging group, right? Like you're, you're, you're perhaps objective skiing and you're uh, two or three other partners, what have you. Maybe you're on an expedition, maybe you're on a day trip. What are the skills you think you bring to a team beyond, let's just assume everyone can kind of ski well. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. What do, what do you think you bring to the team? Ooh, such a good question. Um, I think, yeah, probably my greatest strength is like communication and group dynamics. Um, I, yeah, I think honestly, like being able to ski things, um, well is helpful because there will be times I definitely will go test the snow first or if something's really icy, be the first one to like go to the rappel station. Um, and just knowing I can get down things is helpful for sure. Um, I think learning a lot of rope skills has been helpful and being able to take the skills I've learned and apply them to situations has been cool. Um, being able to like think outside of the box. Um, yeah. And then I'm pretty good at suffering <laughs> and like making light of hard situations. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think just being able to like really love it. And then I think I'm super down to bail. Um, I'm super down to try and I'm super down to bail. And unfortunately, my talk was, you know, limited at 20 minutes, but I had a lot of stories from my recent trip to Pakistan in there because I thought this was a really great example with my good friend, Joey Sackett. Um, we went to Pakistan and got to ski with two local Pakistani skiers, Azam and Naveed. And it was so awesome. Cool. Um, and so Joey and I got up early a lot of mornings to go ski things. And we skied so many things 90% of the way and then didn't get that last 10% because the snow changed and we were just really far away in a new snowpack. And I 
really just appreciate that he says yes and that it's worth it for him to go ski something 90% of the way because I would be so bummed if we didn't go and we just sat at camp and it wasn't like, ugh, we can't go do it. And we're like, no, we can do it, but we can only do it 90%. And when we hit that new layer and that wind loading, we have to turn around. Um, and I think that is like the best to have in a partner. And so being willing to go back, like we went to go ski a line. It was a little too warm. We were hiking out the next day. And so we were supposed to leave camp at like 10 o'clock and we were like, why don't we just get up at 2 a.m. and go ski it before we leave camp? And it ended up being this like amazing day where we skied this line, came back to camp, had breakfast, packed up and then had to hike all the way back to the village of Shimshal. And you're like, wow, that ended up being like a 17 hour day. But how fun was it? So I think being able to try hard is cool. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah. How about you, Jason? What do you bring to the mountains? It's not about me, Sophia. <laughs> you can get out of it. <laughs> what do I bring to the mountains? I I mean, I, I think just like a lot of us, I I don't mind suffering. So there's that. I mean, I, yeah. And so I think I came to this a little bit later, this revelation. And I'm sort of asking myself, why have I been doing this for so long? And why do I still do it and love it? I mean, truly part of the whole deal with like, getting out and skiing before I've been cleared to ski. It's like, I freak, it's like breathing. I need to go do it. So I, I bring that, this passion, this deep passion, but I, but like it's mental clarity for me. And I feel like I'm probably my best version of myself when I'm in the mountains skiing, skiing. I want to qualify that. So anyway, I think I just bring an incredible amount of like, just like deep pleasure of being in the mountains. And I feel like I exude that. I hope, I hope my parent, my partners would say that. Um, yeah. And I like to joke. Yeah. So I feel like I like to laugh. So I bring that. Okay. Um, God, where was I going? Where I had another question for you and I, I don't mean to keep you all night here, but um, oh yeah, I Pakistan, as I've, my kids are one kids out of the house. I got one more to send into the the universe. Um, and it's like, I'm already, I'm starting to pivot towards like, what are my big things? And I'm like, Ooh, Pakistan or like Gosh. Baffin Island. That's all yeah. over the internet right now for some reason. Right. It's like, so that said, I'm curious, how did you land on Pakistan? And then what, what was the, how do you plan that? I think I have an idea how you plan that from a climbing expedition type objective, but how might you do that for skiing? Mm. Yes. I kind of stumbled upon a picture of Layla Peak many years ago, and it's just one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Um, and I think that really drew me to Pakistan. Um, I've spent, as a kid, my mom and loves to adventure and get off kind of the traditional United States tourist tracks. So we had spent some time in Nepal and Burma. Um, and I've just loved like kind of Southeast Asia. Um, it's such a cool place. And I love the dichotomy of the absolutely huge mountains with like hot deserts and like ocean. Um, and then the community is unbelievable. 
And so I think that when you go to non-typical ski destinations, you can find sort of like this joy of people welcoming you in those activities. That's hard to find when you go back to the same places that all the other skiers, you know, constantly go to. And so sort of with this in mind, I think that was a big reason I went to Denali is I just wanted to start building some of the mountain skills to be able to go to places like Pakistan. And then last year we pivoted to building some of the community to be able to go to Pakistan. Um, So did a lot of like research online, reached out to friends, perused Instagram and yeah, got introduced to two local Pakistani skiers who've started a ski club in the Hunza Valley. Um, And their names are Naveed and Azam and they're absolutely awesome. So we reached out on Instagram and connected and started just kind of having conversations pretty frequently about trying to plan a trip together. Um, And that's how we really got connected sort of through the like travel logistics in Pakistan as they did a lot of that work. And so originally our idea was to ski Spantic Peak together because it kind of matched all of our skill sets. Um, But then, yeah, I wasn't able to like fundraise enough money for that long of a trip to do all the acclimatizing. So we decided to go to their home valley of Shimshal, which was so much cooler because then we got to like spend time with their families and like really get to like hang out, which was great. And yeah, I think it was a really perfect trip in that we skied a lot of like high elevation, but like mid elevation terrain, like a lot of like 14,000 to 18,000 foot like kuars and really fun slopes um and just learned a ton and i'm really excited to go back for sure in your talk you were like expedition season in the spring so i'm assuming that and you don't need to disclose anything but are you have some sort of interesting objective that you're now kind of the wheels are turning for you yeah i would love to go back to pakistan and ski some bigger peaks there um, this June, I'm headed up to Alaska. I'm going to go to the Pika Glacier with a friend, Aiden Goldie. Um, he spoke the previous year at Wysaw and is just a real awesome human being. Um, and we're going to go base camp out there. And yeah, I think it'll be really cool. Um, and then my season goals this year, I'm trying to do a lot more jumping. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's kind of funny to be like, ugh, I have all my life to be about near. I need to put some effort into jumping and doing some like the tricks I want to do and things like that. Um, so it's kind of like a, a funny year. When you, when you say jumping, like, uh, like an aerial type. Yeah. Yeah. Dissect that yeah. a little bit for me. Okay. Cause I was like base jumping. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. I was like, what yeah. does that mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. No skis on like hitting jumps and cliffs, doing flips and spins and tricks. Gotcha. Um, okay. Yeah. How yeah. are your knees? And the knees good yeah, still? They've been blown a good number of times. ACL? My back. ACLs, yeah. Okay, cuz I okay, so how long how long did it take till you got back to not hucking after the ACL but just like skiing like you wanted to ski? Yeah, it took me actually a really long time. I just developed a ton of scar tissue and was super stiff as a human okay. um, yep. and I still don't have my full flexion. Um, gotcha. but I started to feel good at like a year. Um, okay. but I work in a PT clinic as on their admin team and we get to see like a huge, you know, a diversity of ACL patients and it's all over the place. Like some people come back pretty okay. quickly. Others take just a really long time to sort of like feel great. Um, my 
sneaky fun fact about ACLs is so in ligaments and tendons, there's stretch receptors that help your body know where you are in space. And those take the longest to come back. Um, so that's like one of the reasons to come back slowly to things. But I think skiing's really tricky because most um, medical providers don't really get skiing. And so skiing is a funny space where like, yeah, like meadow skipping and pow and like ripping groomers is not that much like force on your knee compared to like jumping a big cliff or like smashing moguls. And so I think most providers struggle to give language to when you should come back to skiing because I think that like backcountry skiing feels better on my knees than running or walking downhill. (laughs) And so I'm totally with you. I think it's totally fine to be out there, you know, like skiing right now kind of like stop just like feel your body and trust yourself i'm carrying my inreach just in case yeah it's like (laughs) okay i'm out i'm I'm that dude who just blew out there my real question is like if i'm out i guess i'm yeah i'm just post seven months and i blow my knee out is the insurance going to cover it they're gonna be like oh i'm sorry you shouldn't have been that's keep on thinking about that yeah Um, okay well that's good we live in (laughs) did you did that's true. Did you wear a brace skiing? See, I'm getting As a very... mogul skier, I couldn't. I just destroyed my other knee so badly in it that I never felt good in a brace. Um, yeah, I think that if you're reliant yeah. on a brace, maybe it's not the, the right activity to be doing. Um, and the like amount of shear that you can still get in a brace is enough to tear it. And I think it's kind of hard to move in. So I think that like, keep up on your single leg exercises and especially a lot of good balance. Um, but I'm kind of like, I'm glad that I read Louise. I always read emails. I just don't always like act on them. And I'm grateful that I watched your talk and they also Fisher Fisher, you should hear this. They should be super appreciative that they have someone like you on their roster. They call it, what do they call it? Athlete team? Yeah. Is that what they call it? Yeah. Yeah. They should be, mm-hmm. they, sh- they should be psyched. Just saying. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate them because it's half the battle too. Like, um, I can't do it without them because they have to invest in the objectives that I'm skiing in. They invest in my community and they want me to come home safe. And I know that. And it's really nice to have a sponsor who never is like, why'd you bail? Or like, you should be pushing it or you didn't get this photo. Um, and they're so supportive and they do crazy things. Like any trip I go on, they give all of my friends equipment. So I know we're all on like the best equipment. Like they sent me with so much stuff to Pakistan to like help sponsor the ski club. Cool. Um, so yeah, they're amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Very. I'm glad, I'm glad that you survived the escalator. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it. I appreciate it. I'm, gl- cool. I'm glad that our paths crossed in this capacity. Definitely. Thanks, folks, for listening, and please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and head over to thehighroute.com. You got to remember those hyphens to learn more about what we're up to and how you can be involved. Lastly, the theme music you've heard comes from Albuquerque-based band Storms in the Hill Country from their album The Self-Transforming. We'll link to it on the website 
and the show notes. Pay attention to the sound. Pay attention to your dreams. Pay attention to what's all around. And everything that's in between. And I see my beauty in you. And I become the mirror. Can't close its eyes. I see my beauty in you. And I become the mirror that can't close its eyes.